Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay! Ta-da! The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. It's turning pages here on River Radio. And we have a literary treat in store for you today. You're listening to Heather Adams on Turning Pages. Hello there. Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. Today we've got a really special programme for you to end 2021 on, ten, on a high note. Uh, Turning Pages has an interview with Nick Hornby, no less. Author, lyricist, film script writer. He has Oscar nominations and book sales totaling the millions and millions. He's best known for his memoir Fever Pitch and novels High Fidelity and About a Boy, all of which were adapted into major feature films and in the process inventing a whole new literary genre lad lit and most importantly nick is a local lad as he went to school in maidenhead last month nick came to cookham at the request of the cookham festival as a taster session of the delights of the festival to come next summer in 2022 he spent the evening in conversation chatting about his books his films his song lyrics and of course his memories of Maidenhead and we've been given the exclusive opportunity of sharing this conversation with you. Right let's listen to what's coming up then. Uh, what are your top five special memories of Maidenhead? I think we'd have to go We'd have to go Maidenhead. Berkshire. <laughs> yeah okay. <laughs> well I, I mean there always used to be a fight a big fight on Maidenhead High Street on Christmas Eve. I never understood why. There was one pub where, where they turfed them all out and there was some sort of running battle with the police. Wow. I quite enjoyed that. I mean, watching. I wasn't doing the fighting, but I quite enjoyed watching. As you can see, an eclectic mix of memories there and a really fun and interesting conversation. I can promise you, you are in for a treat. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you about your book ideas for future weeks. So if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, any great book recommendations, if you run a local book club or are a local author, we'd love you to get in touch. You can contact me, Heather, at river.radio with any of your book news and we'd be delighted to include some of your thoughts and ideas in future shows. So let's start the show, as always, with those news items that have caught my eye. Well, as you know, I love an old book. So clay tablets from the library of King Ashurbanipal have just been restored and it's thought to be the world's first encyclopaedia. 
So King Ashurbanipal was the Assyrian king with quite a scholarly reputation. He reigned between 669 to 631 BC. So that's some 2,600 years ago. And amazingly, it seems that the people uh, then had very similar concerns with ones that we have today. For example, treatments that you found from these clay tablets include a cure for baldness. The cure involved the head being bandaged with pulverised cress for three days and then all the hair was shaved and oil repeatedly massaged in for a further three days. And another cure they offered is if you're suffering from gastric constriction, well, your feet would be positioned higher than your stomach and the physician would strike your cheek and rub your stomach while saying it is good for the belly. It's interesting that they use that positive reinforcement, just like when your mother used to give you foul tasting um, medicine and she'd say, just one sip, it's good for you. Anyway, these clay tablets are believed to have been smashed in the 7th century. Then they were refound in the 19th century, but nobody knew what they were until in 2018 researchers realised that they connected to each other and they could work out what was written on. So they now think that some of the medical information could possibly be 4,000 years old as Mesopotamia had a long tradition of collecting medical information from around their travels. And excitingly, it was originally thought that this collection was all that was left from a library that had been destroyed. But now researchers think that it was just a small collection and the main library is still out there somewhere waiting to be discovered by archaeologists. That's a very exciting thought. Now, medieval manuscripts may not be as old as the ones from Mesopotamia, but they are a delight and I am enthralled by them. And a new book has just been published called Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers by Mary Wellesley. And it's published by Quercus. Did you know, for example, that a scribe between 900 and 1200 AD would only be able to copy around 200 lines of text per day, which means in his lifetime, he could probably only do about 20 books, which is phenomenal when you think about the number of medieval manuscripts that are out there. And the earliest intact book is the Cuthbert Gospel from the 8th century, and this is now in the British Library. So if you are interested in taking a look at these beautiful manuscripts, then the British Library near King's Cross Railway Station in London has a regularly changing exhibition. It's free to access and it's always a delight to visit and I'll thoroughly recommend it. So before we start Nick Hornby, let me briefly introduce you to the delights of the Cookham Festival, which is a celebration of the arts that takes place in the beautiful village of Cookham and the Thames Valley. Next year, it'll run for over two weeks between the 6th to the 22nd of May. And there'll be something for everyone. It includes music, spoken word, of course, art, sculpture and even dance. Tickets for all events will be available to buy in the coming months. So do keep an eye open on the website, which is cookhamfestival.co.uk. And of course, Turning Pages will be talking about the spoken word events in more detail over the coming months. So 
It was cancelled, unfortunately, last year because of COVID restrictions. So we asked Nick Hornby um, if he would join us as a guest for sort of like a winter warmer to uh, suggest what the fun uh, Cookham and the environs has in store in May. And so we have today been given very special a treat of being able to share this evening celebration of Nick Hornby with you all today, a River Radio exclusive. So Nick is in conversation with two Cookham residents, Zoe Lister, who's a well-known TV actress and screenwriter, and equally successfully, uh, Rob Castell, a musician and songwriter. And they're talking to Nick about his books, his life, his films and his songs. And this is a fascinating, funny and fabulous recording. I do hope you enjoy it. So let's start with Nick in conversation with Zoe Lister at the start of the evening. We have the author, twice Oscar nominated screenwriter and Arsenal fan, it's Maidenhead's very own Nick Hornby. I hope you don't mind me claiming you as Maidenhead's own, by the way. No, that's how I think of myself. Yeah. Many people might not know that you grew up here. Yeah. I lived here from the age of two and until, I guess, until I went to university. How does it feel to be back? Well, it it was funny getting off at the station, especially travelling down that time on a Saturday because that journey I used to do all the time, going back from Highbury to Paddington to Maidenhead at around 5.30, 6 o'clock. On a, on a, and I, I haven't done it since about 1975, that, that particular time and journey. Right. How was it? Was it rowdy? No. No. <laughs> so it's like a tube train now. I mean, it was, th- there seemed to be a much greater separation between Maidenhead and London when I was a kid. And now it's a transport for London train. Is it finally happening? Yeah. yeah. We're getting the tube. Yeah. It's massive. It stops at every stop, yeah. <laughs> so when you, when you were growing up in Maidenhead, did you feel like you belonged in Maidenhead? Did you feel that sense? Well, I didn't know what Maidenhead was particularly. I yeah. mean, it's a commuter town in the southeast of England. For me, from the age of about, I guess, 13 or 14 onwards, everything was about how many times I could get to London. Yeah. Either to hear music or to see football or to buy records or to buy books so it was the pull of it was the pull of london and and yeah. trying to escape really the the <laughs> urban life you, um, you can say that like no, i mean <laughs> i i loved my friends i loved drinking around here when i was 16 17 18 onwards uh, yeah. the best pubs yeah. and, and and mates but it I, I don't know what identity you have someone who's growing up in a in a town. In, in a commuter town. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I've sort of got this theory that actually the greatest things that have been created come from people in the suburbs who feel that itch to get to the city. London's produced perhaps less music and less literature than you'd think mm. compared to Liverpool or the South Coast or the Rolling Stones coming from Dartford or the Beatles coming from Liverpool or, yeah. you know, all that. They haven't that. had that same drive. They, yes, I think yeah. the, the, the people in London don't have the same drive as the people outside it. Yeah. 
And you live in London now. I live in London now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no looking back. But, it, you know, back in growing up here in, in the 70s, I mean, when I say I had to go to London for books, I did. We had a WH Smith's on the high street, which didn't sell the books that I wanted to read. I had to go to, well, I, I used to go to, to, to Charing Cross Road and, and, and look for things there and Camden Camden yeah. Market. And now we've got the little bookshop in Cookham. Oh, you, you got, yeah, <laughs> you exactly. <just> and <laughs> when people say, oh, I went to see something at Norden, the Norden, Norden Farm. Norden Farm. Yeah. Well, Norden Farm was right where I lived. And Norden Farm, when I was there, was an ex-farm. It wasn't anything else. <laughs> not, not anymore. No. <laughs> so it was just a space where there used to be a farm. That was Norden Farm. Right. And the idea that you could have got, I could have walked four minutes and gone to see a film or a show or whatever people do that is extraordinary. I think one of the great things, one of the great differences between then and now is that cultural opportunities become much better spread out. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. So when you were growing up here, you went to the Desborough College. So it was a grammar school which became a comprehensive while I was there. Yeah. So when you were at school, was there any hint of the writer you might one day become? No, no. One, one reason was that I, th- I think probably anyone who went to school went to a boys' grammar school that became a comprehensive at the time that I went there. There was literally no opportunity for creative writing. We didn't write stories. We parsed sentences and wrote essays. We didn't do anything else. And that was all I can remember about it, really. I, I, in some ways, it served me in good stead. I know what creates a a good sentence and how to parse a sentence and how it breaks down. But I didn't write anything creative while I was there. And we had... He was a lovely guy, an English teacher, uh, called Mr Stanley, who was pretty scary. And um, he used to set us lines if we'd talked or if we'd forgotten things. And the talking line was, my natural verbosity is in direct antithesis to the effective consummation of my academic career. So if you talked in class, you'd say, you, 25 natural verbosities, and that's what you'd have to bring in the next day. And you've remembered it, so you wanted to write them along. So many times. (laughs) And if you forgot something, it was, failure to bring to English classes the necessary materials for working will result in my rewriting these lines a considerable number of times in order that my memory be refreshed. He sounds amazing. But anyway, that's as close as I got to creative work. Yeah. So you became a teacher at one point, didn't yeah. you? Did you did you carry on that tradition? No, no. I, it was it was partly because I didn't want to carry on that tradition that I was interested in teaching. I mean, it was I was teaching because it's partly the last refuge of the scoundrel for a writer. When you can't think what to do or how to earn money then you become a teacher, and that's what I did. But, you know, I I loved the kids, and it was a very different environment. I I taught at quite a funky, comprehensive school right in the middle of Cambridge. Oh, great. So, coming on to your books then. So, your first big success was the memoir you wrote back in 1992, Fever Pitch, Mm. charting the beginning of your enduring love affair with Arsenal football team, after which it became apparent you'd invented a whole new genre of writing, Ladlit. 
You then went on to write your first novel, High Fidelity, which follows the inner workings of music-obsessive Rob's mind as he navigates a breakup from long-term girlfriend Laura. So does inventing a genre come with a lot of pressure? Well, first of all, I hated the genre. I mean, I, I didn't get it. That whole thing about lads' magazines that started around the same time with Loaded and, and all those kinds of things, I, I didn't have any sense of identification with those things. You know, I was a writer. I sat in a room and didn't do much. And, and I, I, I think it was a way... I think there was a snobbery involved because if you write about football and you write about music, then clearly you're not a proper writer who writes about more serious things. So, therefore, it must be like, you know, a, a bit of fun for somebody. Did it come as a surprise that a large proportion of your readership were female? Well, that was interesting because I worked it out in retrospect that Fever Pitch was quite literally written for women in that my editor was a woman and my agent was a woman and my wife was a woman. So (laughs) the first three people I knew would read the book were women and that was definitely in my mind when I was writing them. So there was something about Fever Pitch that was partly conceived as an explanation to people who might not understand and that was more likely at the time to be women than men so the men who read it were sort of standing behind me saying I hoped yes it's like that and then I was presenting it to people again oh okay I sort of see more what's going on with with these obsessions that we might look brain dead from the outside but there is some kind of emotional connection going on Uh, I I feel like as writers we often reveal a lot of ourselves in our writing and I think with those early books in particular they're quite autobiographical well the first one is obviously yeah (laughs) it's a memoir did you find them when they were so successful did you find them exposing no I think I knew what I was doing, there are, there are things that, you know, invo- connected with my family or my love life or whatever, that there was no way I would have put in a book. If it becomes too specific or eccentric or, or, or troubling, then you know you're going to lose the point of connection with an audience anyway. So I was, I was choosing the things that I felt were a kind of universal experience that might chime with people i've heard you speak a lot about going to therapy in your life yeah and you you were talking about that a long long time before anybody else would ever admit to going to therapy <laughs> like when people were still thinking you must have serious yeah. problems if yeah. you're seeking counsel so what gave you the confidence to be open with that that's an interesting question My therapist now is someone I met a long time ago and he used to be my boss at a job that I did and he was training to be a therapist while I was trying to write and I kind of lost touch with him uh, until someone recommended him as a therapist and I thought, oh, that's weird, I actually know him. And he's such a smart, normal, in many ways, guy, that I never really had a problem thinking about it or talking about it. It, it. it felt relatively normal, and then there was this sort of gift of a thing that happened, which was that I had to, when I was, I was skin, and I was entitled, if I went and saw this guy, I, I was entitled to get, I can't remember whether it was free or discounted therapy, 
and I went to see this guy in Hampstead, and I, I did literally travel from his office to get this free pass to White Hart Lane to see Spurs Arsenal. And just that journey from this therapist's office to White Hart Lane seemed so peculiarly symbolic of, of something. I'd be mad not to write about it, so even if it seems weird, it, it, it's a gift. I can't look that gift in the mouth. And, and do you think your career as a writer has helped you make sense of your life? No. <laughs> No, I think, I think being a writer is very good for the stage before last. I mean, maybe I'm just thick and it takes me that long to work things out. But I can make no sense of what's going on at the moment. But when I think back to four, five, ten years ago, more of a shape emerges. Oh, yeah, that's good. So you can work things out. Very, along. very slowly. It's <laughs> probably the same for us all. So I, I think that becoming writers you think, oh, um, I'm probably not going to become a writer to become famous because, you know, writers are very solitary creatures and you just go and sit yeah. in a room every day on your own. But you are very famous now. How have you... Have, has that felt fame always been welcome in your life? Well, first of all, I think you have to separate writer fame off from actual fame. Yeah. Writer fame is pretty good because no one knows... Who no you are. It's completely random whether people have ever heard of you or not. You have to accept that most people don't read books. Most people don't buy books. I've sold a million copies of a book several times, which is extraordinary in the world of books. Yeah. But if you're a TV programme, you get taken off for those numbers. Well, I'm not sure Nick is... I think Nick is being very um, modest there. And it's interesting that he's talking about TV numbers because I always think the reception of books is interesting. So you know how you, you read a book, good book and you want to talk about it to your friends and then of course you pass them on to friends and family. So every good, great book purchased, it probably has an after reading life of many, many more readers. Anyway, the conversation with Nick now moves on to his latest book, Just Like You, published by Penguin, and is now just available in paperback. It's a charming and frequently very funny book. And before we listen to the conversation, let's hear a little section from the first chapter, set in Britain in 2016, and introducing Lucy, the protagonist, to us all. Could one say with any certainty what one hated most in the world? It surely depended on how proximate the hated thing was at any given moment, whether you were doing it or listening to it or eating it at the time. She hated teaching Agatha Christie for A-level. She hated any Conservative Education Secretary. She hated listening to her younger son's trumpet practice. She hated any kind of liver, the sight of blood, reality TV shows, grime music and the usual abstractions global poverty, war, pandemics, the imminent death of the planet, and so on. But they weren't happening to her, apart from the imminent death of the planet, and even that was only imminent. She could afford not to think about them quite a lot of the time. Right now, at 11.15 on a cold Saturday morning, the thing she hated most in the world was queuing outside the butchers whilst listening to Emma Baker going on about sex. She 
She'd been trying to move out of Emma's orbit for a while, but the movement was imperceptible, and would, she guessed gloomily, take another four or five years yet. They'd met when their children were small and went to the same playgroup. Dinners were offered and reciprocated and offered again. The children were more or less the same then. They hadn't developed personalities, really, and their parents hadn't yet decided what kind of people they were going to be. Emma and her husband had chosen private primary education for theirs. As a direct consequence, Lucy's boys found them insufferable. Social interaction eventually stopped, but you couldn't do much about living near someone, shopping in the same places. It was a particular stage of the queuing that she hated. The point at which one was right outside the door, kept shut in winter, and one had to decide whether there was room inside the shop. Go in too early, and you had to squash up against somebody while running the risk of anxious queue-jump faces. Too late, and somebody behind would tutor metaphorically for her timidity. There would be a gentle suggestion, a, do you want to? Or a, there's room in there, I think. That was what it was like. Pulling out at an intersection required aggression. Didn't mind being tutored when she was driving, though. She was separated from other drivers by glass and metal, and they were gone in a flash, never to be seen again. These people were her neighbours. She had to live with their nudges and disapproval every Saturday. She could have gone to a supermarket, of course, but then she would be letting local shops down. And in any case, the butcher was just too good, so she was willing to spend the extra. Her sons ate neither fish nor vegetable, and she reluctantly decided that she probably did care about them ingesting antibiotics, hormones and other things in cheaper meat that might one day turn them into a female Eastern European weightlifter. If they chose to become female Eastern European weightlifters one day, however, she would fully endorse and embrace their decision. She just didn't want to impose that destiny upon them. So we must talk about your most recent book, Just Like You, which is a love story set to the backdrop of the 2016 referendum, which seems like a brave choice. Well, when I started it, it had been a couple of years since I know, I probably started it in 2018. The dust had settled. Well, I mean, it's not really settled yet. No, it hasn't. Yeah, that's a, that's a weird, weird one that it will keep going for a while. But what I had begun to see when I listened to these endless conversations that we all had was, A, nobody knew anything. Not my team, no. not the other team. No. Everyone talking from a position mostly of complete ignorance unless you had a business and you had to deal with import and export licences and so on. But, but we've all, all read Twitter, so we have been... All my friends who, you know, had spent years consuming music, watching football, reading books, suddenly yelling in someone's face about the future of the British economy. I thought, this is ludicrous. You know, like, somebody could take me apart. I voted for Remain. But if there was a cogent economist who believed that Brexit was the best thing, he could have destroyed me. Yeah. And and I hated being in that position of getting red in the face about things I was ignorant about. So my characters were both really in a position of ignorance. And it's um, a young black guy and an older white woman who who get together through him babysitting for her. And they're just sort of being tossed around a bit by 
what's going on. They, they can't make up their mind how to vote or why to vote or anything like that. And just what I was worried about at the time was that we would never be able to connect face to face talking with the other with, side, with the other side yeah. ever again. Uh, and yet that was stupid because it was something, as I said, that we were ignorant about that was separating us. Yeah. So I wanted to find a way of writing about how you could connect by going round the back, I guess. Yeah. I, there was an interesting point in the book where your character Lucy is pondering what makes her feel European. Mm. And she realises it might actually be connected to the fact that she can go there on holiday in a couple of hours quite cheaply. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe if she lived two hours away from Bondi Beach she'd probably feel Australian. No, um, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think we're incredibly snobbish about Americans who don't have passports because there's something like 40, 50, 60% of Americans don't have passports. Yeah. And you think, imagine if, if Devon was Florida and Manchester was Los Angeles. You know, we wouldn't bother having passports either. We'd, 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 that's where we'd be going. And, and yeah. of course, we've enjoyed getting to know other countries, but the basic drive for most of us has been to get out of our weather. So your two main characters, Lucy and um, Joseph, they're quite different from you. As you said, Lucy is a, a white woman who's 42 and she's recently separated from her husband. And Joseph is a black 22-year-old DJ. Mm. So neither of these perspectives are remotely like your own. Did you worry you might get something wrong? Oh, of course, but I yeah. worry about that in every book. Do I you? Mean, it, yeah. It's quite a freighted time mm. at the moment to, to write young black people or women, even. It's, you can get yourself in terrible trouble. But I also... I live in a, you know, a multicultural community, and I, I, I kind of wanted to fight for the right to describe what I see out of my window. And it seems crazy to me if you say you can't write about that person, you can't write about it. I mean, if I can't write about women, that's half the human yeah. race. Yeah. And, and if I can't write about different cultures from my own, that's probably about a third of my community as well. So it's a very reductive argument, I think, that says, really, if you follow it through, that you can only write about people of your colour, age and gender. Of course you're going to get things wrong, but the way I do it is to write it and then give it to people who know about yeah, it. And they, they'll tell me if I've got things wrong. Yeah, and I feel like you become a writer to, to inhabit other worlds and other perspectives and write from those worlds and different histories. Anyway, yeah. if you're going to have any kind of career as a yeah. writer, you've got to start thinking about other people and, and what their lives are like. Yeah. Did you, when you'd had that massive early success, did you think, oh, that might be it, I've peaked? Or did you know you had good stuff in the can? I've never, I've never worried about ideas. Mm. They've, they've always come. I think that what you can't recapture probably is to be the right person in the right place at the right time, which I was for those first two books, for Fever Pitch and High Fidelity. They had success that was beyond literary success. I guess, that they struck some sort of chord and they came to represent all sorts of things that I never knew they would end up representing. And of course, when that goes, you worry whether you'll miss it. But yeah. I think the books, from my point of view, I've enjoyed writing the books. They've found a readership. 
And also, I, I had this other different career that started in film as well. So I, I, I don't miss the time where every book is, the, is, is, is a big deal. Yeah. And I, I look at people now and feel a bit sorry for them. I feel sorry for Sally Rooney having a book out at the moment and her having to carry the weight, enormous weight of expectation from young women on her shoulders, which eventually she's going to have to slough off because she won't be caught in that lightning anymore. And then it's about how good you are and, and what you want to do with your writing. So you briefly touched on the fact that you've edged into screenwriting now. Yeah. How did that come about? Because obviously you adapted some of your own work for the screen. I, I, only, wrote, I only did Fever Pitch. Only Fever Pitch. Yeah. So how did things like Wild and Brooklyn and, and Education come about? Did you pursue those jobs? Were there other people in line for them? Well, it things changed with an education. I, my partner is an independent film producer and she's always looking for material and at the time she was sort of earlier on in her career and I kind of a bit further down the pecking order I guess. She wasn't getting the big books, her and her producing partner. And so there's a sense in which if you can't get the big books, you're moving on to the next level and then the next level and the next level until you're actually trying to make films of not very good books. Yeah. And, and we were having this conversation. I said, you've got to find material from other places. And then I read this essay in Grant of the Literary Magazine by Lynn Barber. And it was about six pages about her teenage years. And, and I said to Amanda, look, I think this could be a fantastic film, but there's nothing there. I mean, it's just a very skimpy little bit of prose. And, and, and she liked it. And when she started looking for writers, I, I suddenly felt very possessive of the material. And I said, I'd like to do this. And so there were no other writers interested because no one had picked it up for film. It was just... Idea. Um, it was my yeah. idea to adapt it and her idea to produce it. And when you work in independent film, you usually have to take a punt. So, you know, I wrote a draft or two drafts on spec and then started taking it places and then the BBC got interested and then it, it goes on from there. And it turned out to be this really beautiful film in ways that you hoped for, but everyone's got to be on the top of their game. Yeah. We had a wonderful Danish director and then Kerry Mulligan in her first starring role and other good, you know, Emma Thompson, who I knew, agreed to be in it, and Rosamund Pike, who was with this wonderful comic role in it. And it just sort of turned out great in ways that you can only dream of, actually. Yeah. And from it being a terrible struggle to get made, it then got picked up by an American distribution company and then it became part of Oscar award season and then, yeah, I got nominated for the screenplay and Amanda got nominated for producer and Kerry got nominated. So we had this rather jolly so. award season time. Yeah. But that put me in a different league in terms of screenwriting. Suddenly everyone's knocking on your door. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I get jobs offered to me. And that's how Wild happened. I, I, in fact, I'd met Reese Witherspoon on that award circuit and she read my books. I mean, that's the weird thing about being able to jump 
like that. You've got an impressive contacts list now. <laughs> it is quite weird. Just Reese. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's terrible to have to keep. She's a friend. Reese is a friend. Yeah. So I, I do find myself saying Reese, and that's terrible because it that sounds like you're showing off. But I can't say Reese Witherspoon every single time. Yeah. I mean, anyway, she'd, I met her at a party. We were introduced, and she'd read my books. And you think, oh, I didn't realise famous people read yeah. the books. Yeah, they're reading their own stuff. Yeah. They, they've, got, they've got a famous, famous writers, famous people bookshop where yeah. you've, you've never heard of any of the books that they're reading. Yeah. But it isn't like that. They read the same as everybody else. So yeah. When she optioned Wild, she asked me to adapt it. Great. Well, I've got lots of questions from the audience. Uh, what are your top five special memories of Maidenhead? I think we'd have to go... We'd have to go Maidenhead. But, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there always used to be a fight, a big fight, on Maidenhead High Street on Christmas Eve. <laughs> I never understood why. There was one pub where, where they turfed them all out and there was some sort of running battle with the police. Wow. I, I quite enjoyed that. I mean, watching. I wasn't doing the fighting, but I quite enjoyed watching. <laughs> this is very revealing. <laughs> I used to go in Harlequin Records, which then became our price, but it was Harlequin Records in Maidenhead oh. Town Centre. And I, I think there was a, like a 99p Al Green record that you couldn't get. I'd never seen anywhere else. That was a big memory yeah. for me. Maidenhead United. I used to go and watch Maidenhead United at York Road, where, as many of you might know, Ryan Reynolds was on Wednesday night. Did you know that? Ryan Reynolds has bought Wrexham Town and the first game he was able to see was Wrexham playing at Maidenhead on Wednesday this night. This is so weird. It was like literally on the news. I missed it. Yeah. Yes. 3-2. Sorry, Ryan. Yeah, against 10 men, yeah. So we're on three. Well, I used to drink at a pub the other side of Henley called The Old House at Home, which was in the middle of nowhere, run by an old cockney lady called Rini, who uh, hadn't made the transfer to decimal currency. She just had a box for the money. And after 11 o'clock and 10 minutes to drink up, she went to bed upstairs and we were allowed to look after ourselves. We were all scrupulously honest and we stayed the night there and she would make us sandwiches in the morning. Aww. And that was, the, that was the greatest pub in the world. Okay. All your books are entertaining, great reads. Which is your favourite of your own books? Duh. I'm going to say one that no one's ever heard of because I... I for, 10, 15 years I've been writing a column for an American magazine that I love called The Believer and it's called Stuff I've Been Reading, the column, and it's literally just stuff I've been reading and they became, those columns became something, a way of me expressing something that I wasn't able to do in anything else I was doing and they, they became a sort of autobiography of a 15 year period in my life where I'd already started writing and kids were being born and that was all coming into the column so I'm very fond of those books and the rest of them are like my kids I couldn't choose one above yeah. any of the others Fair enough Right, who's your favourite Arsenal player? Oh, well, up until 1998 when Arsene came it was always Liam Brady who was <laughs> the greatest Is there a bet going? <laughs> the greatest player I'd ever seen and then in 2002-2004 suddenly 
the team that I've been watching all my life had four, five, six world-class players in it. And I would say at that time, well, it was Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp, Patrick Vieira, Freddie Lienberg, Robert Perez, but literally in the same team every week. And yeah. I would have to say that from that period of my life, Thierry was... My three sons all have middle names that come from Arsenal. Yeah. So the oldest is Daniel Liam. The next one is Lowell Henry. And the third <laughs> one is Jesse Patrick. Brilliant. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the decline of male fiction authors? Well, this has been a thing this week, hasn't it? Yeah. And it came from something that a writer I love called Elizabeth Strout said in an interview recently about why don't men write about this stuff, meaning very minutely observed fiction about relationships and, and, and domestic life. And it's true that men don't do a lot of that and never have done. In fact, my ambition when I started was that I wanted to be the male version of Anne Tyler. Anne Tyler was my heroine and she was the one that made me want to write. And I thought, why can't guys do a domestic thing? Because we have a domestic life and we have domestic thoughts and feelings. And so really that all my books ever since have been set mostly around the home, a couple about work, but that's it. And I don't think that's anything new. I don't think that writers throughout, male writers throughout history have necessarily written much about the home. But men are reading fiction and writing fiction. It's just not the sort of fiction that gets talked about in the book's pages of newspapers. My, my brother-in-law is Robert Harris, who's a very smart histor historical and contemporary thriller writer. He, his books are read by men in their millions. But somehow he's being excluded from this debate because they're not talking about that kind of book. You know, it's, they've drawn a very weird map of a territory which misses out a lot of yeah. chunks and say where Any, are all the men in this? Anything too popular is like, no. Well, too popular or, or yes, too popular but also they, they just only want it, to, they, they, they're basically saying why aren't men writing books by women? I mean that's what the question is, <laughs> which yeah. is mad. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think we've got time for one more question before I'm going to hand over to Rob. Which song would you not request on Desert Island Discs? Which song would I not request? <laughs> Most of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really make sense, does it? I wouldn't request A Horse With No Name by America. I hate that song. Why do you hate it? Well, it's one of the only songs that people I know like it, and I think this is the most dirge-like, awful song, with terrible <laughs> words. There's, an, there's a great American stand-up who said, I don't understand that song. You're in the desert. There's nothing to do. <laughs> Name the horse. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Nick. So we must talk about your... So obviously, um, here, Nick was talking about his, his memories, his books, and then we started to talk about his songs, or rather songs he enjoyed. He very famously wrote High Fidelity. Now, Nick is a lyricist, so now we actually have Rob Castell talking to him, and he'll be talking about what's behind the lyrics that he wrote. Let's uh, get Nick to introduce how he got involved in songwriting. At the beginning of the 21st century, I wrote a book called 31 Songs about my, some of my favourite songs and what my relationship was to them. And one of the songs I wrote about was a song by Sm 
uh, called Smoke by the band Folds Five, which is a beautiful song and with, uh, I think, brilliant lyrics. And I, I wrote about how much I love this song and Ben Folds, the, the artist, got in touch with me and we started talking by email over a period of years. And then Ben said, have you ever thought of writing lyrics? And I said, no, nope, not really. And he said, would you like to think about writing lyrics? And I said, okay, you know, I listened to a lot of songs. He said, would you like to write any lyrics for William Shatner? And I said, well, okay, I, I, I would love to write uh, lyrics for William Shatner. And Ben was producing an album for William Shatner, an album that eventually came out called Has Been, and I wrote two songs for it, two or three. One of my songs is called That's Me Trying, and it was about a very bad dad of about Shatner's age, who is trying to get in touch with his daughter after 20 or 30 years, and trying to make small talk, that's what the lyric is. And, and Bill, Ben called him Shat, he said, Shat really likes this. And, and so he recorded it, which got him in great trouble with his family because it turned out that he was a very bad dad who hadn't <laughs> spoken to his daughter for 20 or 30 years and they couldn't understand why he would want to sing a song about it. I, I didn't know that at the time. Anyway, it was all an enormously entertaining experience. And then Ben said, okay, let's try a whole album. So for uh, a few months, any fragment of idea I had became a song lyric, and I sent it to Ben, who turned it into a song, and uh, we released an album called Lonely Avenue, and here's Rob. Thank you very much. Yes, so I, I knew of Nick's writing, but I was also a big fan of Ben Folds and Ben Folds Five, and I went to the concert in Hammersmith in about 2010, where he'd been introduced and you, you were there, I believe. Yeah. I think he referenced you and said, he's here, he's upstairs. And so I've known the album for, for a long time. I've been really interested in it and loved it. So obviously it's a, an absolute bonus uh, for this evening to be able to talk to you about the album, to talk to you about the lyrics. And what I'm going to do is, first of all, I'm just going to sing a song by the band America. Yeah. Uh, I, so it's fine, as long as just it's to not get us into one. Not that any other one, anyone. Yeah. So I'm just going to do a few snippets from the album so I'm, I'm going to talk we're going to talk about a few of the songs and anything else from the album that you want to talk about and then I'm just going to play a few bits from two songs and then one whole song as well because I feel like a lot of people didn't even realise that Nick is also a lyric writer a lot of people I've spoken to didn't know this album particularly well and I really advise you to go and listen to it so on the album itself you say it was sort of fragments or it was emails it was it was there was then it was there ever a cohesive plan for like this is the album we're gonna to want to tell this story or you want to tell this no, story it was no just... there was never a plan it was ben just said send me lyrics that's all it was and i felt some degree of pressure because if you're going to bring in a lyricist that lyricist has got to provide some kind of content and if I decided to write the song where the lyrics I love you, will you marry me, I love you, will you marry me, uh, over and over again, however heartfelt it was, that Ben could have read it and thought, well, I could have done this myself. <laughs> so it turned, really, each lyric was some kind of short story, I think. And some of them were literally short story ideas that I'd, I'd never used. And I thought, oh, that would be a perfect lyric, and in fact, I never knew how to make it any longer than 
three minutes <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. So now I can use it up on this. And so it's, half of them were like that, and half of them I just noticed my brain starting to think that way for a period of time. So, you know, if I thought about something, I thought, okay, that's not going in a book, that's not going in a short story, that's going to be a lyric. A lyric. Okay. And one, the remarkable thing for me was... Um, Ben is a phenomenally gifted songwriter. I mean, he's like a, a McCartney or, or something. And I, a couple of times I sent him lyrics in the morning and he sent me the song that day, which he'd written and recorded and, and played all the instruments on. You know, he's like an incredible drummer. Yeah. So piano, drums, bass, sent it back. And I thought, hey, this didn't exist 10 hours ago, and now we have everything. That's apparently, apparently that's true of Prince as well. People would go around with an idea, and they'd give it to Prince, and before they'd even finished the idea, he would send them, the writer away, the lyric writer away, go down to his vault, and then come back <laughs> the next morning, and there was the song. So the first song I'm going to just do a little bit of is a song called Doc, or Doc Pomus. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the pronunciation, but I wasn't a bit ashamed of my ignorance, but Doc Pomus was a songwriter who who was actually pretty famous in the day. Can you mm. tell us a bit about how this song came to be and your interest in him? Well, that it was literally because I'd read a biography of him around about the time that Ben was asking me to write songs. And he wrote a lot of big late 50s, early 60s hits. But he was, he was paralysed. And he used to sit in the lobby of this hotel... He couldn't go anywhere, but he, the lobby, the hotel was so seedy that he spent his whole day watching gangsters and hookers and people, music business people on the make, kind of walking past him and doing their business in front of him. So he didn't need to get out because the scene was so lively where he was. Yeah, and it features the title of the album. It's Turn Me Loose, Lonely Avenue, and Down in Nashville, Overseeing Suspicion. Was that, is there a reason why that became the title of the album that was ben's choice yeah he wrote um he wrote the song lonely avenue which ray charles turned into a hit so i, I wanted to list his songs and then ben ben liked i think it was the combination of the image on the on the album cover with those two words okay so uh, here is a little bit of that song Man in a wheelchair, lobby of the forest with writers, hustlers, hard-up millionaires Mobsters, cops, whores, pimps, and Marxists All human life is there Man in a wheelchair listens to the chatter Writes down all the insane crap he hears He can't move around but it doesn't really matter In the forest all you need is eyes and ears and out they pour the hits and the misses Turn me loose, lonely avenue And down in Nashville, Elvis sings suspicion Palmer's Schumann, 1962 Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely, that. That's uh, beautiful, beautiful chorus. Yeah, I've got the words in front of me just because I was like, I can't get them wrong in front of the guy who wrote them. So. <laughs> the guy who wrote them wouldn't remember, probably. Oh, OK. Anyway. No. OK. But yeah, so that one, so, no, so just... As a lyricist, that's obviously quite, a, quite an involved piano part or whatever. Is there ever a moment when that comes back to you and you're like, oh, no, that's not what I was thinking? Do you have the license to do that in that relationship or do you just have to kind of release your words and 
Well, <laughs> it, it was really interesting for me to understand the mind of a musician. The very first thing we tried was a melody that Ben already had, and it killed me that we never recorded it. So I wrote this lyric for it, and I sent it to Ben, and Ben just said, no, that's not it. And I said, what do you mean it's not it? He said, I don't know what that melody is, but it isn't that. And, and I realized at that moment that I could have written 500 different lyrics, and Ben would have said each time, it's not that. Right. And he knew it was something that he couldn't articulate, and I was never going to guess. He said, let's do it the other way around. You send me the lyric, and I'll provide the tune. And sometimes I'd send the lyric, he said, I really like this lyric, I got nothing. And sometimes he'd say, yeah, here it is. And I don't think there was ever a time when I thought, whoa, I didn't expect it to sound like that. Most of the time I was just kind of thrilled to bits. But he said it was all about the rhythm of the words. And if he read them to himself, sometimes a fragment of melody would come out of the beat of the words. So that was all I was conscious of, was providing lyrics that had some, some kind of rhythm to them that would enable his melodic process. So the, the next song is one called From Above, which is such a beautiful concept. And I wonder if you could just kind of get our minds into the concept of this song. Well, that was an idea either for a short story or a movie about two people who, uh, a man and a woman who live in the same town and are made for each other, but through a whole, just because of the way life is, they never ever meet. So it's called From Above because God or whoever can see not only that they're right for each other, but they're going to keep permanently missing each other. So the, the lyric is about how close they came on, on several occasions while uh, never actually being able to fulfill the destiny. Okay, so let's have a bit of From Above. They even looked at each other once across a crowded bar. He was with Martha, she was with Tom And neither of them really knew what was going on A strange feeling of never Heartbeats becoming synchronized Staying that way forever But most of the time It was just near misses, air kisses Once at a bookstore, once at a party She came in as he was leaving And years ago at the movies She sat behind him the six showing of while you were sleeping he never once looked around it's so easy from above you can really see it all people who belong together lost and sad and small but there's nothing to be done for them it doesn't work that way sure we all have soulmates but we walk past them every day oh and it's not like they were ever actually unhappy in the lives they lived. She married Martha, she married Tom. And just this vague notion that something was wrong. An aching at an itch that could never be scratched. It's so easy from above, you can't really see it all People who belong together, are lost and sad and small But there's nothing to be done for them, it doesn't work that way Sure we all have soulmates, but we walk past them every day oh. 
it's once again such lovely chords amazing so rich yeah yeah that's what i've always loved about about ben's stuff is if there's a if there's an extra note he'll always add it in a way that doesn't muddy the waters you know the, the chord and then what he adds always just kind of just opens it up emotionally because it, it's it's a lot i think i was maybe reading something else you said about how you know music almost does the job that words can't do you know in terms of the atmosphere that you try, yeah. you're maybe trying yeah. to write a chord can just illuminate that. yeah well I, I always think all my writing career sometimes i'm just pitching for the effect that a chord change can have and i wish i could do it as chord changes rather than as twenty thousand words in a novel <laughs> <laughs> yeah which this and this is the, the last one that we're going to do which this is i think another really good example of that musically and this is the song that really stayed with me massively when I first listened to the album a song called Picture Window which uh, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to do all of to finish our, our little chat it's such a beautiful song and, and a, a really beautiful um, story so do you want to give us a little insight into this one? Uh, yeah well this this is the one that's more or less autobiographical in fact I my uh, eldest son has autism and autism's not the problem in itself he's also been quite sick over periods of time and one New Year's Eve he was sufficiently sick that his mum had to take him into hospital <coughs> and I was I was calling her I, I said how how's things and he, he was very uncomfortable it was not a, not a great night and she was the only one allowed to stay and she said well she said there's a wonderful view of, of Hampstead Heath and I thought yeah you're so positive you know and she said and there are fireworks and everything and anyway it was something that stuck with me was her determination to be positive and i think in the song it's slightly changed it's that the, the mother of the sick child is determined not to be positive and 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 to try and keep all hope away but the scene outside is so spectacular and beautiful and, and so on that in the end she kind of succumbs to hope and checked into the hospital new year's nothing to be done about that rainbows daffodils she's not naive there's a big picture window over parliament hill but the view offers more joy than they can afford this much pain to kill you know what hope is hope is a bastard hope is a liar a cheat and a tease hope comes near you kick his backside got no place in days like these at dusk the darkness surrenders to color as the fireworks streak the sky and their window gives them the prettiest picture their useless luck makes right then it turns midnight the shitty old year spent another mom gives her some sparkling wine and she nearly gives in to the moment but he'll still be sick in 2009 you're not hopeless hope is a bastard as hope comes near you kick his backside got no place in she's thinking of pulling the blind down a rocket burst in front of her eyes the city lit up london's given a bright crown she tries and fails to stop spirits rise you know what hope is hope is a bastard hope is a 
cheat and it's he's hope comes near you kick his backside got no place in days like it's an honor to play that song with you here and and indeed all of the songs that is very um, amazing kind of otherworldly experience for me so thank you and yeah listen to the album and listen to the William Shatner album as well it, it ex existed so so thank you very much for agreeing to do that as part of this evening as well all right so I'd like to say thank you very much to Nick Hornby, to Zoe Lister and Rob Castell for our interview there, and also to the Cooking Festival for allowing us to do it. And don't forget, that was a very special edition of Turning Pages. We'll be back to our normal format next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us then, then you can listen directly from our website. And Turning Pages, it's also available as a podcast. From, just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcasts.